This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Annie Dickerson from Good Egg Investments. Annie is a multifamily real estate syndicator, meaning she partners with passive investors to buy large multifamily assets throughout the country. She's going to tell us more about her experience when we get into the interview, so I will certainly let her do that. In this interview, you're going to learn about some of the mistakes that both passive and active investors are making today in what she's observed by investing in real estate through her rapidly growing company, Good Egg Investments. Annie and her business partner, Julie Lamb, have done very well in multifamily real estate. She's going to tell us about how they really narrowed down their focus in their business, and that just helped them go so much further. You're going to learn all about that. If you're someone who wants to passively invest in real estate, this is a great interview to listen to. Or if you want to bring passive investors into your real estate investments, still a great, absolutely a great interview to listen to from, from both those ends. And he's a lot of fun to talk to. So without further ado, here's the interview with Annie Dickerson from Good Egg Investments. Annie Dickerson from Good Egg Investments, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Taylor. So you and your business partner have been have, have accomplished so much in the time that you've been investing. Can you give a rundown of your accomplishments for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, we're crushing it basically is what it comes down to. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we've, yeah, we've, uh, we've been really lucky with the partnerships we've been able to forge over the last year and a half since we've been in business. So Julie and I met at a conference, a real estate investing conference, and we hit it off right away. And a few months later, we created the partnership in the middle of 2018. And in the year and a half we've been in business, um, we've, uh, we've done about 23 deals, most of them large-scale multifamily across Texas and the Southeast. Um, total asset value um, just north of 700 million, but of course we're not, you know, the sole own owners of all 700 million dollars. But, but we are a piece of that, um, and we have um, just north of about 100 investors at this point, all across the country. That's awesome. You have really accomplished a lot, and you're putting out a lot of great content. And, you know, I, I'd like to cover a lot of it about, about what you do. But before we get to that, we were talking before we started recording about your ideal client profile and how you and Julie thought about that before you really, you know, or as you, you mm -hmm. got into raising money from investors and yes. buying real estate. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and how that has uh, impacted your, your business? Oh, absolutely. It's been everything. It's changed everything. At the beginning, like many new um, capital raisers, syndicators, we started out with, you know, anybody, everybody, anybody who's got money, come on in. We'll help you invest in something. We'll find something for you, no problem. You got 50,000, 100,000, we'll help you. Um, and similarly, the, the content we were creating, the blog posts and the videos, we're geared toward everybody, which as you know, it's hard to create content for everyone. It's way too generic. It's hard to think of something that will resonate with everyone without offending somebody. 
And so we were really struggling there until we sat down and we said, well, who are we really trying to target? And so Julie and I are both working moms and we really had a passion for helping other moms and busy families to get into syndications because it's such a great way to create passive income. So you can actually spend time with your family. Um, and so we sat down and we got super, we went from super broad to super nitty gritty. And we defined an investor avatar. We even gave her a name, Jen. And she's 38 years old. She's got three kids who go to private schools. She's got a dog. We know the houses she's owned. We know where she lives. We know what her husband does, what she does. We know that she's got yoga pants in the closet that she barely gets to take to yoga class because she's too busy to go to yoga class, even though she wants to. And so we know everything about her. And here's the difference that it made in her business is whereas before we were creating very generic messages that didn't resonate with anyone, now all of a sudden we could sit down and we could say, okay, well, what would Jen need today to get from where she is folding her laundry and getting dinner on the table and worrying about her kids and her job? What would it take to get her one step closer from where she is right now to being able to invest confidently in a real estate syndication? So with that lens, we were able to create much richer content that spoke directly, not just to Jen, but funny thing was that we had not just moms, but we had, you know, retirees, we had working dads, we had new college grads, we had everybody starting to connect with us in our brand because now our brand had a personality and that was the difference. That's very smart. And you, you went from a, a generic brand to having a, a personality and a lot more authenticity. And that authenticity didn't even, didn't just resonate with your target client. It resonated with others who maybe just by virtue of its authenticity in addition to its quality. So I definitely, you know, I, I can appreciate that. That's very smart. Yeah, exactly. It made all the difference, both from our end and from our, from how our investors were receiving the information. That's great. So I'd like to talk about, touch on some of the lessons that you've learned partnering on so many multifamily deals. And I don't, I don't know if you've done any deals outside of multifamily, but be interested in that too. Mm -hmm. But in that range, I'm, I'm or in that experience, I'm sure there's been a range of experiences and, and, you know, good experiences, bad experiences. What are some of the tough lessons? This is a broad question, but what are some of the tough <laughs> lessons that you've learned along the way partnering on so many deals? Oh, wow. We could spend the whole time just talking about <laughs> that. Oh boy. So, well, you know, when you partner with somebody on a real estate syndication, the first thing you have to know is it's a long-term relationship. <laughs> I mean, these deals that we're doing, they're five-year holds and a lot can happen in five years. Some marriages don't even last five years, <laughs> you know? And so we, we've learned to really take our time and really vet the sponsors first and foremost. We used to look 
primarily at the deal. And we'd say, does this deal look good? Does this market look good? Does this pencil out? Is the underwriting conservative? And we realized that's just a small piece of it because it's really the sponsors who make a big difference. Because at the end of the day, when the deal closes and all the investors have already wired in their money, there's, it's just those, the sponsor operator who's responsible for actually executing on the business plan. And so we take great stock in vetting um, our sponsor partners and making sure they have a track record. This isn't the first time that they're doing it um, and that they are operating responsibly and with integrity because that's what we want is when the surprises happen, because they will happen, we want to know that those people that we're partnering with will do the right thing by the investment and by our investors. So what do you mean by vetting the partnership, the sponsorship team? You know, is that you know, go to coffee with them and see if you like them? Is it interview their, you know, you know, third generation up and down the, the chain to make sure they're all legit? I mean, how, what does that mean in terms of uh, in nuts and bolts sense vetting the sponsor? Great question. And yes, it's all of that. It's um, really leaving no stone unturned. And I think first and foremost, we make sure that we get along with those people as just friends, as associates, you know, because like I said, this is a five, potentially more than five year relationship. And so we want to make sure that we get along just as, you know, as coworkers and as friends. So we spend time really if we can we take them to coffee we hop on the on multiple calls with them we meet with them in person at local and regional events and conferences and so we're really just it's almost like dating you're really trying to get to know the people um, and almost always we try not to invest with them in the first deal that they're doing like if we meet them right now and they have an open deal they want us to raise for it. Most often we turn that down because we want to watch how they operate. So then we'll say, you know, that's great. They, unfortunately, we can't partner with you on this deal, but let us know when you have um, another deal available. And in the meantime, what we're doing is we're really continuing to get to know them, but we're also watching what they're doing. So if they have these ongoing communities, communications with their investors will say, hey, would you mind adding us to that list so we can see what you're communicating out to your investors? And so through that, we can see, you know, are they actually meeting their projections? Are they keeping their investors in the loop? Are they communicating on a regular basis? And are they able to hit those cash flow projections? And so we're really just taking a, a step back and just watching to see how they're doing. And then if the, the relationship is going well and they're not getting defensive when we ask them questions <laughs> and they're really doing a, a, an upstanding job with their deal or the deals that they've in their portfolio, then, then yeah, then we potentially move forward in, in partnering with them. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, how do you, because I've been in this situation myself and I'd like to get your perspective on this. When you, someone asks you, Hey, you're a partner on this deal. You bet the deal. Maybe you don't know the person so well and you decline. You say, thank you. I'm going to pass on this one, but let me know in the future. 
And in my experience, some people don't take that super well. They, mm. And even though you try to be diplomatic about it, do your best, how do you handle that so that your, your intention in declining the deal is not potentially misinterpreted and taken you know, maybe personally as an offense and rather you're just saying, Hey, you know, I'm not ready to, to, you know, jump in the car with you yet, but mm-hmm. let's, you know, let's keep talking. Yeah. How do you, how do you right. do that? What do, what do you do? You know, there is no great way to do that, but that is another um, test, if you will, you know, how they respond when you say, you know, this isn't quite the right fit or the right timing for us, watch and see how they respond. And if they do get defensive or they try to talk you into it or they try to sweeten the pot somehow, um, then that could be a red flag because that's a sign of that ongoing working relationship. You want somebody who's open-minded, who respects your decisions, because that's going to come up again and again throughout the life cycle of the project. Interesting. That's, that's good to know. I've run into that myself a few times and I, I constantly think about it. Um, I had a question from an investor today, and I'm curious, you've probably gotten this, this question before. Curious how you'd handle this. He asked, what value does someone who's acting in a capital raising capacity, in a sense, mm-hmm. bring to an accredited investor who can ostensibly you know, invest in basically any deal they want? What value does someone in your position bring to that investor? Absolutely. That's such a great question. We get asked that all the time, too. And so first you have to think about the accredited investor, right? So an accredited investor has built a substantial amount of net worth or income. And so, but in order to do that, they're probably busy people. They probably don't have a lot of time to go to real estate investing conferences and to vet all these partners like we had just talked about. And so they're probably just looking out across, you know, they're Googling and trying to find sponsors with deals. You know, they've got money to place, but they don't know exactly where to place it. And they don't really have the time or they don't want to bother with trying to sort through all these deals. So I think that's the benefit of somebody like us is that we are part of that world and we make it, we make time to vet those deals and those sponsors because that's what we love to do. And so we do that on behalf of our investors. We go out into the field to meet these people, these sponsors, and to look at these markets, to vet these markets and these deals so so that by the time that we get those deals to our investors, they can be sure that they've met our criteria and that they're strong deals with, um, with great potential. So I think it's really a matter of like, we are really picking across, across the landscape and we are choosing sort of the cream of the crop, if you will, to give to our investors so they don't have to spend the time sorting through all that themselves. Okay. And yeah, you have a lot of time and money and effort invested in putting these opportunities together and separating the the good out from the bad or vice versa. And that's the value that you bring in, in many ways is bringing those opportunities and, and sorting them, filtering them, and then ultimately probably managing them as well, of course, to, to bring right. them to completion. Exactly. Okay. Now, you're doing a lot of education online for both passive investors and 
people who want to be more on the active side. What do you think, especially on the active side, what do you think are some of the biggest lessons that people don't know when they're getting into the active side of the syndication business? I mean, you mentioned before new syndicators try to go and they might get a property under contract, but they haven't raised a dime and they're like, oh crap, I don't have any money to close this thing. So that's one. We got that one out of the Mm -hmm. way. What are some other things that you've run into? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of newer syndicators, they don't realize the value of um, what they can bring to the table. So we talk to them about creating a thought leadership platform and really sharing what they've learned. And people are like, oh no, you know, there's syndicators who are way more experienced than I am. You know, they're more qualified to create that content. You know, who am I to create a blog post about a syndications when maybe I haven't even done one before? And you know what we say to that is, you know, um, you know that movie Catch Me If You Can with Frank Abagnale? And you know how there's this part in the movie, one of his many roles was he um, he uh, got a job as a professor of sociology and he had never, he'd never studied sociology before. I think he was a college dropout, like, but he successfully taught the course and <laughs> nobody ever knew. And they asked him, how did you do it? How did you fool everybody? And he said, it's easy. All you have to do is stay one chapter ahead. <laughs> and that's what we tell people who want to get into this business is all you have to do is stay one step ahead of your investors. And to, to an extent, that's actually better than if you were 10 steps ahead. Because those really experienced syndicators who are 10 steps ahead, often they forget what it was like to be a new investor. They forget those questions that newer investors ask. And so the fact that you're just one step ahead is perfect because you can remember, oh, last, you know, last year when I did my first syndication, one of my biggest questions was what happens when a recession comes? So let me create a piece of content about that. You know, and so that's a big thing that we try to empower the students in our program with is that they really have enough skill, enough knowledge to start out creating these thought leadership platforms. And that's really where you start to build the trust with your investors. And you're really giving back through sharing your knowledge and showing your investors that um, you are an authority in this field. Hmm. Okay. There's a book that I'm I'm thinking about. Um, oh, The War of Art. Have you ever read that book? <laughs> no, I've heard of it though. It's it's very good if you're somebody that's thinking about creating content, whether it's educational or, or what have you. But it, it's there's a creative aspect to it. It's been very helpful for me, so it might be you know something to consider checking out. The War of yeah, Art. Yeah, I'll definitely cartoon. I'll add that to my list. Yeah. Definitely, definitely a great book. If there are, are there any other lessons that people might be missing out on? So they they need to start a thought leadership platform to stay ahead. Um, anything else? Any of those big lessons that people miss, when, especially when they're getting started? Yeah. So that that defining your target audience—that's another big one, which we already talked about. Um, and then another big one that we see people get caught up on all the time is um, their website. People get caught up and they say, well, I can't, I can't contact investors until I have a website. It has to be 
perfect. It has to look and I only have one chance. And um, believe it or not, the first deal that I ever raised money for, which was before Julie and I partnered up and before GoDag Investments was a thing, I did not have a website. No website. Not even a crappy website. Just no website. I literally sent to my friends and family, I sent them a one-page PDF, a bullet-pointed PDF with what I thought about the deal. And that was it. I was able to raise money from that because I had these great relationships with people. I mean, obviously it wasn't just the PDF, but it started the conversation. And so that's something else is I think a lot of people wait and wait and they wait till they can get their website up. And then once they get their website up, it's like, oh, I need to get the newsletter. Oh, I need to get the lead magnet up. I need to do this and that. And they wait and wait. And no, it's just get into it and you learn way more once you get into it than you would by trying to put all these pieces in place beforehand. Interesting. So get started before you have all the pieces in place. I wonder, that's an interesting example about uh, sending out your, your one pager to friends and family. What would you say in, in Silicon Valley, I think there's this concept of the minimum viable product what would you say, in a sense, is a minimum viable product for somebody getting into real estate syndication? So you don't need a, you don't necessarily need a website. You don't need this, but you maybe need an email list. I don't know. What do you need? Yeah, oh, I love that. That's MVPs. That's my like my previous life in the startup world. Um, I love that. I've never thought about bringing the MVP into syndications. Go for I love it. that. Um, you know, I would say it's more about you than your investors. I think it's more about making sure that you understand how the deals work and making sure that you know the ins and outs so that when, because your investors don't care about a fancy website, what they care about is the deal. They care about, is the deal going to make my money work for me? Is it going to get the returns that you say it's going to get? And especially those first investors, they're most often going to be your friends and family, so they already trust you. And so I would say more than a fancy website, more than any written material, any of that, I think you need to first understand the deal. That's, that's the minimum. That's the baseline. Is <laughs> like you need to understand how it all operates so that you can communicate it effectively to people. You don't need a target audience at that point yet because it's your friends and family. So those are your target. That's your target to begin with. You don't need a website and you don't need blogs and content because you're talking to them one-on-one, -on -one. but you need to understand how it works and be able to communicate it when you're in these one-on-one -on -one conversations. Okay. So that's, I, I would say that's where you start. Okay. And how about, uh, so starting, uh, you know, you're, you you've got your friends and family list, so to speak, to approach. Another uh, piece of resistance that people might hit sometimes is the, you know, everybody's been pitched, uh, uh, I hate to say, I hate to draw this con comparison, but everybody's been pitched multi-level marketing at one point and it's sold as a, this is a great investment opportunity. You go and, you know, hit up all your friends and family about this. Whereas you and I, and, and here on the podcast, we're talking about actual real estate investment properties with people living in them. This is real stuff, right? Not multi-level marketing. Yeah. But how in your mind do you recommend like new people get over that hump of maybe if they have it saying 
I'm not pitching a, a, a crap. <laughs> I'm pitching a real actual investment opportunity in cash flowing real estate. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. There's so much stuff out there, right? And I feel like people are, you're just getting pitched all the time. And so, you know, we always, in our early conversations with our investors, we don't, we try not to focus on the deal or the returns or any of that. We focus on the investor and we say, Hey, you know, we're not, we're not trying to sell you something. We're not trying to force you into something, but we really want to just be here to help you if we can, if it makes sense. And so we put it back on them. We say, you know, if money were no object, what would your life look like? And funny enough, most of the time people are like, huh, that's a good question. <laughs> I can't never thought it. about that. <laughs> I've never, I've never really thought. I mean, yeah, that's all I have to think about that. And we're like, okay, before you invest in a deal, let's just talk about that first because you need to know where you're headed in order to actually make it there. And so we spent a lot of time helping them to figure out what their, not just their investing goals, but what their life goals are. And so in that way, you know, we're not at that point, we're not selling them anything. We're not trying to invest, get them to invest in a deal. We really just are genuinely interested in their lives and their goals. And then along the way, as we learn more about them, then we're like, okay, I think that um, you know a syndication might fit in and help you get to your goals faster. And so it's really about like we really are there to help them. And so there's this great um, there's this great book, um, Building a Story Brand by Donald Donald Miller. And in it, he says that a lot of brands when they start out are not even when they start out, just a lot of brands. Period. Um, <laughs> think that they are the hero in the story. So like if we're in Star Wars, the brand thinks they are the Luke Skywalker. And he says, in fact, your customer is the Luke Skywalker. You, as the brand, as the company, you are the Yoda. You are the guide. And so I think if you take that sort of approach you focus on your investors and what your investors are trying to, where they're trying to go and what they're trying to get, then you really are just providing a service. You're not trying to sell them something. You're giving them an opportunity. And I think that is the, the small but mighty mindset shift. I like that. I, I literally just put that book on my Amazon list. That sounds like a, I really like that, uh, that, metaphor are there are there any other i love getting books out of people are there any other books or things like that where you've gotten a very important lesson about working with investors from i think that would be very illuminating i'm sure there have been many i can't think of one off the top of my head but um there is one that um has made a profound impact on my life and sort of guides our investor conversations, which is um, designing your life based on the very popular Stanford course of the same name. You know, it's the most popular course at Stanford in all of history. It's like completely full every time they offer the course. And so they finally turned it into a book called Designing Your Life. So basically the book takes 
the principles of design thinking, which is used in Silicon Valley and startups and product design, and it applies it to your life. So this is particularly helpful for our investors who don't know what they want their lives to look like. And so we help them think through some of this, which includes things like, you know, prototyping and gathering feedback, but about your own life, you know? And so if people are in a job that they want, they don't love, well, then, you know, what kind of job would you like? And can you prototype that? Can you create a minimum viable product? And can you try out that other job before fully to it. So things like that. It's a really, really good one. Nice. I like that one. I'm gonna have so many books I need to read. <laughs> I already have a bunch, <laughs> but I would have so many more. Um, all right. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right. I've got three questions. I ask every guest in the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Great. First one. What is the best investment you've ever made? The best investment I ever made was the first investment property I did out of state. And it wasn't a home run by any means, but it got me into that market, which was Huntsville, Alabama. And I took a chance, got into that market, and then have been able to expand our portfolio there quite substantially over the last uh, couple of years. Interesting. So when was it that you made that uh acquisition. And for the listeners, you're based in Oakland, California, I think, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So this was 2017. Um, once I realized that I, I wanted to spend more time with real estate investing, but the Bay Area is crazy expensive and very competitive. Um, so I realized that it wouldn't, wouldn't be very easy to, um, buy cash flowing real estate here. I don't think that's even a thing, <laughs> cash flowing real estate in the no. Bay Area. Um, so started looking at all, all these different markets all around the country, finally settled on Huntsville, Alabama as an emerging market. And the reason I say this first one was our best investment was because it really just got us over that hurdle, all those fears of, you know, can we do it? It's so far away. Um, you know, what happens if this happens or this goes wrong, you know, and all of it did go wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> the important thing is we got into that market and um, that's, that's the key. Interesting. What kind of property was it? Was it a multifamily or like a turnkey or, or what was it? It was a multifamily, um, six units, and I found it on LoopNet of oh, all boy. places. Oh, oh, yeah. It was a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I, I don't want to get too far off the rails here, I guess, but if what, what's like a, a important lesson that you learned out of that? Was it basically just don't buy properties on LoopNet? Was it something, <laughs> something I don't know, but uh, if you had a, like a top takeaway from that, what, what uh, did you get out of it? I think my top takeaway was that underwriting on paper is way different than what actually happens. On paper, it looked great. We're cash flowing hundreds of dollars every month. Uh, 
per door. And it was, you know, we were like, this is a cash cow. Why is this on LoopNet? You know, this is a great property. It was right across the street from a place called Campus 805, which is an old middle school that the city of Huntsville shut down and then turned into um, local microbreweries. And they have an axe throwing place, a paint and sip, you know, all kinds of cool little um, businesses. Cool. And this is right across the street. And um, so we thought, surely nothing can go wrong. This is definitely in the path of progress. And we're going to get great tenants and we're going to have great property management. And some of those things went right. <laughs> and a lot of things popped up that we did not anticipate. Um, so I think having more reserves and having more of a buffer, I think, would have helped. Interesting. Okay. So we're filling or we're recording this on uh, November 5th. Well, the evening, my time, it's not mm -hmm. afternoon, your time, but, uh, uh, November 5th, 2019, do you still own that property? You know what? We just sold it as of about one month ago. So we owned it for almost exactly two years. And, um, in that time, we actually, this year, we pretty much just broke even on it. Um, we didn't make any money on rents or we didn't really lose any money because of all the, the surprise maintenance that we had to do. And, but when we sold it, we made um, almost $100,000 on it over a span of two years in a small market like Huntsville when we purchased it for $170,000. So I'd say that's a pretty good return. Yeah, that's definitely pretty good. Do you think that's mainly, is that mainly due to the uh, improvements in the property that you made or market appreciation or some mix of those two? I would say it's mostly market appreciation. Uh, some of the improvements that we made, uh, mostly just cleaning up the, the units as they turned over and um, cleaning up the exterior a little bit. But Really, that's a big part of that has been um, the appreciation in the market, which is why it's so important to choose good growing markets. Nice, nice. So uh, we're going to move on to the second question. We got, but I, I wanted to know a lot about that. But um, second question, what is the worst investment that you've ever made? You know, before we got into that first one in more detail, I was going to say that first one. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> that was the best and the worst. But um, since we've talked about that some more, let me give you another one. Um, so when we first started investing, um, we were house hacking. And the first house hack we did was great, actually. This, and then we got cocky. We were like, we're good at this we got this whole duplex thing, we're gonna do another one. And so we actually bought another duplex in DC, actually on the same block. And the experience was way different. For one, the configuration was a little bit different. Um, it was still an up and down duplex, so the second unit was in the basement, it was an in-law suite, but it wasn't a full separate unit. And so because of that, we had a number of issues with finding good tenants um, during the time that we held it. So we held it for almost 10 years. Um, and in that time, we probably only made, you know, when we sold it, we made, I think, probably $200,000. 
versus think about the the one in Huntsville, right? We held it for two years and we made $100,000. So um, that second one in DC, that was not not our finest one, um, but certainly uh, we've we've learned lessons with every property that we've in, invested in. Well, as long as you you learn a lesson and you <laughs> you learn a lesson and you ultimately make a little money, then then I guess how bad can it be really? Although you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you even if you lose a little money and we have lost money before, it's you know it's the it's the school of life. You know, you got to pay your tuition one way or the other. And so that's, I think that's the biggest lesson I've learned is don't sit on the sidelines, just get in, whether you lose a little or make a little, doesn't matter, is you're learning those lessons along the way. And that's the most valuable piece. Nice. The school of life. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Got to pay your tuition. So my favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you have learned in business and investing? Oh, so one of my favorite sayings is fail faster. And it's something that early on in my career and in investing, I was scared of was failure. I think everybody's scared of failure. You know, you want to, you have your reputation, you don't want to lose face, you don't want to lose money. You want to show everybody that you've got it, you know how it's done and you're going to succeed. But the problem with that is if you're always afraid of failure, it takes a really long time to get started because you just have this really high standard and you're like, well, I'm never going to hit that standard. So let me just do a little more research or practice a little bit more or wait until the timing is right. But the timing is never right. It's never right. And so what I've learned is not only to fail fast and embrace failure, but to fail as fast as possible. And that's something I learned from my days in the startup world is the fast, I mean, feedback is, sorry, failure is feedback. And so every time you fail, you learn a little bit about what not to do. And so the faster that you can fail, the sooner you can succeed. And so that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned in both life and in investing. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, Annie, thank you for joining us today and, and sharing all of this knowledge. If people want to learn more about you, about your company, all that, where can they get in touch? The best place to go would be our website, goodegginvestments.com. And if anybody wants to reach out to me directly, I'm at Annie at goodegginvestments.com. Awesome. Well, thanks once again for all the lessons today and uh, sharing all your knowledge. Well, at least, Absolutely. At least some Always. of your knowledge, not all your yeah. knowledge. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Taylor. Thanks so much. Happy to talk with you again. It's been a little while. So yeah, it's good to catch up. To all the listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you did, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a very big help. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we will talk to you on the next episode. Take care. Bye-bye.